welcome to Creative Block. I'm your host, V. Gene is away doing some Q-bomb stuff. He's a busy bee, but we're keeping the show going. Uh, we interview people in creative industries about their life, work, and hobbies while we doodle jam. We asked people on Twitter if they had specific topics they wanted us to discuss, as well as, as some drawing prompts. And today with us, we have Marley Hor I've never said your full name. That's crazy. You have to say your last name. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you don't have to say people's last names at them very often in day-to-day in -day life. <laughs> Uh, hi, I'm Marley Halpern Grazer. V, I've also never, not only never said your name out loud, I have maybe never heard anyone say your last name out loud. I know. I, I have this thing where it's like, I'm like, oh, it's too complicated and I'd rather people not say it, but I guess. Is it like you, you heard, you heard an American say it once and you're like, no, never again. We're just not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> it's just that it's like, it's just like. Okay, so when I uh, when I started uh, learning English in school, everyone has like the the English version of their name. So if their French name is like Jean, then it would be John. Mm -hmm. Or if their name is like Mark, then it's still Mark, you know. But yeah. <laughs> if it's Pierre, then it becomes Peter. But for my name, there's no English name, so <laughs> I'm like, all right. Uh, and not Violet. What about Violet? It's it, yeah. Actually, it comes from Violet. So now I do. What I do is I gave in. I'm like, yeah, just say violin, like a <laughs> violin. <laughs> but um, that's why I'm happy that I can go by V. Because no, like, yes. I like V. Yeah, you don't have to worry yeah. about yeah our for for a language that has so much French in it. We don't know how to say any of those words right. <laughs> well, I mean. You know, we, I could say that about French people, uh, English <laughs> words. So, you know, <laughs> but um, so I'm really excited to have you on the show because uh, you're writing, you're executive producing, you're creating and pitching. It's really, uh, it's going to be really, really fun to go into all of these topics. You've been on shows, uh, you've created and uh, co-created and co-executive produced right now, Kapow. Um, and on Thundercats War and Aquaman, were you also a producer? Yeah, so I was. Uh, I was. Uh, I'll, I'll. I'll list all my all my stuff. Uh, I was. Yeah. I've been at Warner Brothers Animation my entire career, uh, which has. And I was fortunate to get that job young, so I've been at Warner Brothers Animation my entire adult life, essentially. <laughs> uh, and I was a staff writer on Mad on Cartoon Network, and I wrote a bunch of Scooby Doo. Uh, I, I worked on Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated, Be Cool Scooby-Doo, I wrote a DVD, uh, and then I co-created an executive produced uh, animated sketch comedy show called Right Now Kapow uh, that aired on Disney XD. Uh, and then I wrote Batman versus Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, a direct-to-video movie that we did. Uh, I wrote uh, direct-to-video Teen Titans Go!, a movie where they fought the original Teen Titans. I worked on the, I did some writing on the theatrical Teen Titans. And then, yeah, I was a, I was a producer on Thundercats. I was really the head writer because Victor Courtright uh, created it um, and was the, the co-EP, I think was his title in the end. Mm -hmm. um, and then I was also producer on Yabba Dabba Dinosaurs. And then on Thundercats, me and Victor developed and pitched that together. And we were both co-EP on Aquaman 
uh, on Aquaman, King of Atlantis, an HBO Max miniseries, uh, three-part, 45-minute each series. Uh, me and Victor Courtright co-developed it, and we're both co-EPs on it. That's, yeah, that's so crazy. That's so cool. I, I love, I love Thundercats and the Aquaman. They look so good. Oh, yeah. and, and, and the writing we, is so fun. I and, was, and we yeah. worked on Thundercats Roar together. I don't know how much you've <laughs> talked about Thundercats on here before, but... I've talked about it a little bit because um, that was like, honestly, that was my favorite show to work on. It was just so fun. It was just like, not only just a, the style of drawing, but the writing. I remember seeing the first, when I took the test and I saw the first page and I was like, this is the kind of show I want to work on because it's just really goofy and fun. And this is the, and it has a little bit of sweetness to it as well. Uh, kind of felt like Dragon Ball, like mm -hmm. the, Definitely. like the the first like the rich like the the beginning of dragon ball and i was like that's what i want to do yeah i um, feel like probably because everyone who worked on thundercats roar were like you know everyone was like different ages and had different backgrounds and different things that they loved i think probably the most common point of reference was i think everybody on that show loved dragon ball yeah i could yeah i could see that i could see that that would that would be uh and and also just kind of like cheesy 80s cartoons yeah yeah definitely. <laughs> uh well it's nice to hear you say that about the uh the script pages for the test because writing that script was basically my test uh when, oh yeah yeah when we were when victor was because victor developed the show on his own he came up you know with all the characters and the tone and everything completely on his own and he he wrote and boarded a different animatic for a different episode and uh cartoon network liked it but like wanted to see like what another episode would be like um and so partly basically to test me i wrote that episode with victor um and then they did another uh animatic and then they used that script page for the test for all the storyboard artists that's so funny that's so interesting i can't wait to talk more about like what it's like the early days of a show and like developing it and pitching it uh, but before we get too deep into that, I want to just kind of go uh, talk about a little bit about your origin story, kind of like, when did you know you wanted to go into writing? Did you always know you want to write for animation? Uh, yeah, so I, yeah, I will answer both those questions. So uh, the, the thing, I definitely did not know that I wanted to go into writing uh, at a young age. At a young age, I actually specifically disliked writing. Uh, like the actual, like I always liked coming up with stuff. I always liked thinking of stories and telling stories. I just didn't like actually writing, partly because we didn't have a computer as a kid. So writing meant handwriting, which I still don't like. Um, I, I like typing a little more than, than physically writing. Although honestly, I don't like typing that much either. It's a, it's a necessary evil because there's no other way to get my ideas out in the world. Uh, what I, what I like doing is, is thinking of ideas and coming up with stuff and, and imagining things is basically what I have always loved doing. Yeah. Um, and so the, the common thread for me as a kid was actually more performance. I just like attention and I liked anything that let me stand up in front of people and, and perform and usually make them laugh. I always liked doing stuff that was funny. Um, and so I would really, I was, uh, I was homeschooled, uh, my whole life until college. So I didn't have any opportunity to be in like school plays or anything as a little kid. Mm -hmm. Uh, so what that meant is I just made, came up with any opportunity I could 
I would do, you know, talent shows at like big family parties. I would just gather all the other kids and basically write sketch comedy shows during the party and then make the adults watch us perform it like at that party. <laughs> um, we would do basically sketch crams uh, at, at family parties. Um, so funny. And uh, but then when I started doing my grandfather, it was a two it was a two prong thing. My grandfather showed me the movie King Kong, the 30s, the 1930s King Kong, which is I, I know a lot of filmmakers have said that King Kong is like the thing that made them want to make movies. And that's the case for me. Watching King Kong as like a five year old made me want to make movies and I think the reason is, is because King Kong has this one-two punch of the characters in the movie are making a movie. So they're talking about making movies in the movie. <laughs> and then the effects for King Kong himself, because he was a stop-motion puppet, are just like, it's this perfect mix, I think, as a kid where, like, you can tell that it's a special effect. You know it's not an ape, but it's magic that it's moving. And it makes you think about, like, how did they do it? And I think that there's, I, I don't, I don't think it's a coincidence that like, you know, Guillermo del Toro and like a lot of people are, and like Peter Jackson, like a lot of people are like, I saw King Kong and was like, I want to do something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that um, and sense. so that happened to me too. So the very first movie I ever made was when I was five years old. I re I made a remake of King Kong where I made all my family act out King Kong in our front yard. Uh, and I played King Kong. I was five and I was like, obviously I'm the giant ape, the smallest person here. <laughs> Um, oh my gosh. Oh my uh, and so from that point on, it was like my grandpa gave, would basically give me his hand, hand me down cameras. Every time he'd get a new camcorder, he'd give me his old one. So I, I slowly over the years upgraded my camera capabilities. And basically from that point on, a background interest of mine was making movies. And I wasn't good at it like if you saw my movies as an eight-year-old you would not be like well this kid obviously has natural talent um the only thing (laughs) i had going for me is i just kept doing it um and and i did it because then i would make everyone at parties sit down and watch my movies um and so the the sort of i didn't take it very seriously as a career i was always like i thought i wanted to be a scientist i wanted to be like a, a zoologist or like a Specifically, I wanted to be a herpetologist. I wanted to study frogs. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I loved frogs uh, and turtles and snakes and lizards. I loved going out into the I lived, I grew up uh, in the in the country in upstate New York for most of my mm-hmm. life. And I really loved like going into ponds and just catching frogs and just wait, mm-hmm. wading into swamps and grabbing animals out of the swamp. Uh, and I was really, I was really concerned with the amphibian decline, uh, which is the frogs really? mis- mysteriously just dying off. And I really wanted to like help fix it. Um, and uh, so for a long time, that's what I thought I was going to do with my life. The problem is the other thing is I was bad at math. Uh, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't like math. I didn't, wasn't good at math. And that was gonna, it took me, it took me a long time to accept that that meant I was never going to be a scientist. <laughs> Uh, when did you give up on your science dream? What uh, were you? I think, I think I officially. I don't think I officially gave up until I was looking at colleges, because wow, up really? until up until the point that I was actually looking at colleges, I think even when I was like fourteen or fifteen, I think I probably was still saying, "Well, I need a college that has a good film program and a good biology program because <laughs> I want to do both." <laughs> 
Um, That's so funny. I, I was probably still saying that until I was like 15 years old. Um, oh, wow. And what, what changed when I was uh, 14 and 15 is uh, I started making my own claymation uh, videos. Uh, oh, cool. and, and I, I think it, I literally think it was, I think a, a, a mom, another homeschool mom did like a one day animation class for the homeschool kids where she just had us do like the simple flip book. Like she like explained what in-betweens were and the mm-hmm. basics of cell animation and then like had us make a flip book. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I, you know, I did a bouncing ball that transformed into a bird and flew away, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's so cute. And, uh... Then I I literally think I was at home after that class and just talking about animation and like mentioned something to my dad about like, oh, well, I can't really because I can't draw 2D. Uh, I'm you're going to see in a second when I try to draw something. Uh, <laughs> and I was talking about how I can't draw. And so that means I can't I couldn't really do animation, even though I really love it. And I, I really think I was just offhandedly like I was like, well, I could probably do claymation because I can mm-hmm. I can make a little clay guy. And then I just that day just did i was like yeah i could do that and i just went in my room and like made a little animation where a little clay guy ate another little clay guy uh and that started me down the path of doing these little really simple claymation videos and suddenly people really responded to them and were excited to watch them and started reacting to my movies like they were actually good i honestly think just (laughs) here's the thing i think it's just that they were short because I, I I was making like 40 minute long movies when they were live action and they were awful and boring and no one could watch them. But su- suddenly once I was making animation, I could only make them like three minutes long. <laughs> That's so funny. Do you feel like during animation, you were like, you had to get to like the core of the idea much faster. Than yeah. You were, yeah. I think, well, cause it had to be really simple. Cause I couldn't animate yeah. it if it wasn't simple. Uh, it had to be short because even though I was animating very crudely, it still took a long time. Uh, and uh, so, yeah. So suddenly my, my claymation movie started getting into film festivals. Uh, I started. Really? To, yeah. Like teen film festivals, but uh, uh, I, started, cool, I started getting into teen. And then, and then that started making me take my filmmaking more seriously. And then I, I started making shorter, more focused live action stuff that was also getting into film festivals. Um, I was doing a lot of these sort of like comedic documentaries, basically, where I would just kind of run around with a camera and like tell tell jokes. Um, and those were those were getting into film festivals. And it just made me start taking my filmmaking more seriously. It made my parents like. Uh, like get me actual editing software. I got like an actual digital camera. I started going to this like summer school program for the arts that New York state has um, where I took, I took video uh, and it just then basically from 14 to 18 uh, that became my thing, Uh, especially because I was homeschooled. That became almost all Mm -hmm. I did was just make movies. Uh, And I wanted to be a live action movie person. I specifically wanted to be like, the Coen brothers or M night Shyamalan. Mm. Like I wanted, I wanted that card that says written, produced and directed by Marley Halpern Grazer on, mm-hmm. on like a feature film that I independently produced. You know, it oh, was wow. the, it was, yeah. it was, you know, I was doing this in like 2001, 2002. So that was like the, that was like the, the, the end of that big nineties independent film boom. Uh, when mm. it was like Miramax and Fox searchlight and, you know, Quentin Tarantino and Kevin Smith and like those, that kind of, that's what I thought filmmaking was, was being like, uh, a film, a film dude who pr- wrote and produced his own movie, and you know, cast his the same people in every one of them and everything. 
Uh, and, uh, and I didn't specifically think of myself as like a comedian or a comedy writer, but like realistically almost everything I did was funny. Um, that's so funny that like, how did you not like, did you, uh, do you think it's because you were taking yourself seriously or just because you were like, well, the comedy is just a little bit, but the drama is like a bigger bit. Like how did you, yeah, I'm not really sure. It's like so much of my career was not realizing my actual strengths and just doing everything because I was doing everything. Like I was, I was, Mm. you know, shooting and editing and directing and acting, uh, Mm -hmm. and, you know, doing the special effects. I had this like crappy CG program, like, God, I wish I had Maya because then I would have known how to use Maya since I was like 14 years old. But uh, mm. instead, I had this weird program called like Real D or something. Uh, <laughs> and true, no, True Light. I don't know. Any, anyway, point is, I was like, you know, animating. I was doing like Dragon Ball stuff. I was like, I would do movies where we'd be like shooting CG spheres at each other and part of people would explode into particle effect blood. <laughs> Um, and I did, I, I, I combined it. I did, you know, I, I lived up to my, uh, my King Kong inspiration. I did a lot of, uh, filming claymation monsters in front of a green screen and superimposing them over my live action stuff. That is so cool. Uh, so I was, I was doing a lot of that. Um, and yeah, I I don't know why I didn't notice that basically everything I was doing was a comedy. I mean, I guess, like I said, I, I think what I really wanted to be was the Coen brothers. I wanted to make like comedically tinged artistic, serious movies, I guess. I know what you mean, though. I think, you know, I I know exactly, I, I, I agree with that sentiment in the sense that I'm like, also the Coen brothers are like, I think one of the biggest inspirations for me, it's like, because you can make something, you can make like, like silly characters do dumb things, but still have really high stakes. Mm-hmm. And I think this is such a like, it's just such a, a specific, but like, I don't know, so enjoyable. Um, but then, so then what, but then what happened is, so I, I realized I wanted to be a film filmmaker. So I, I was only applying to film schools. Uh, so then I went, I wound up getting into Emerson college in Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't know this, but Emerson college, especially at the time was going through this sort of comedy boom, um, oh, where there was, there just happened right, right before I got there, the class right before me just happened to have six or seven just truly like once in a generation gifted uh comedians mm-hmm. um and it was people like uh uh harris whittles uh who is has sadly passed but was a successful stand-up and tv writer um joe mandy who is still a successful stand-up tv writer noah garfinkel same thing stand-up tv writer just like uh there were just like four or five uh people who have all been come very successful stand-ups and tv writers uh who all and sort of because of them, the class right after them, the one I was part of, was full of like 30 people who thought we could do it too. <laughs> uh, pretty much none of us have been as successful as that first group. Uh, but it just means we were all trying. Uh, and so I fell into this group of comedians and like orientation week of Emerson, I did stand up for the first time. Uh, right away I started trying to join comedy troops. There were like seven comedy troops at Emerson. I wound up like joining two of them. Um, I started doing, uh, uh, Boston is a big stand-up city. So I started just doing stand-up and sketch just out in Boston. Uh, and, and Boston also happened to have, uh, a bunch of people who have become very successful stand-ups. Like I was doing stand-up with Josh Gondelman and Mike Kaplan. 
Um, mm. We were sort of right. We were like right after like uh, Eugene Merman was in Boston right before I was uh, and uh, and people like that. Uh, and so, yeah, I just I I started doing almost exclusively live comedy stand up and sketch. But I still thought I, what I was going to be was M. Night Shyamalan. Uh, and it took me three years of college to notice that what I was actually good at was comedy and that the best expression of that was actually TV writing. Um, and so my senior year of college, I didn't have to change majors or anything. Like I have a film major, but I just completely shifted my focus and I completely shifted to, I'm going to try to be a sitcom writer. Uh, and that that became my entire goal when I graduated was to you know write a write a, a bunch of comedy. I wrote in college. I wrote a bunch of comedy spec scripts. Uh, I wrote a Futurama script. I wrote a The Office script. Uh, I wrote an original pilot. Um, and again, once again, without really noticing it and not thinking about it too much, one of my two spec scripts was an animated show. And my oh, original yeah. and my original pilot was for an animated show. I want it was like a Venture Brothers kind of inspired thing. That was Adventure Brothers started airing while I was in college and was really kind of a, a I liked Adult Swim just in general, but I think mm-hmm. kind of like what you said, Venture Brothers had a lot more plot and stakes and like yeah. took its characters a lot more seriously. So like I loved mm-hmm. the comedy of like Space Ghost and C Lab, uh, but there was something kind of revelatory about taking sort of that sensibility and telling a real story with it, which is what Venture Brothers yeah. was doing. Mm-hmm. And so, again, without realizing it, thinking I was going to try to be a live action sitcom writer, I came out to Hollywood with almost entirely animated sample scripts. <laughs> That's so interesting. That's so funny. But it's funny, too, because you said The Office and I noticed that in the Nickelodeon um, fellowship, you know, the writing, mm-hmm. the, they, it's often a, a show that uh, they have for people to spec, you know, in their list. Um, so yeah, cause I guess it's like very, it's like, it's, it's so goofy. It's almost animated kind of like Parks and Recs. Yeah. Of. And I always say, you know, I can jump, jumping ahead a little bit, like as a producer, if I'm reading sample scripts from people, even if it's a kid's animated show, mm-hmm. I don't need your sample script really to be for an animated project. And I definitely don't need it to be for kids. Like, writing is writing and comedy is comedy like if you give me basically if you just give me your best funniest script i can tell if you could write an animated kids show or not mm-hmm. um and and also the, the the things that are sort of really specific to animation and really specific to kids like i can teach you but i can't really mm-hmm. teach you i don't have time to teach you like structure and 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 basic writing and i can't teach you how to be funny that will never happen so if, if, if you can show me that like you understand structure and basic storytelling and you are funny, I can, I can teach you the stuff you need to know for animation in particular. <laughs> yeah. I see what you're saying. It's kind of like, yeah, like the animation specific side of it, which is what would you say right now is kind of what you're looking, what you would teach someone for like animation, writing for animation? Uh, I mean, it depends on the show. Uh, one thing, I think the biggest thing about animation is that show, there's a bigger difference from show to show than there is in live action. Like, mm. if you're if you're a sitcom, there's basically two kinds of sitcoms. There's multicam and single cam. And mm-hmm. within those, there's not that much difference. Like, if you're... If you're if you know how to write a multicam sitcom, you can probably write on any multicam sitcom. If you know how to write a single cam sitcom, you could probably write on any single cam sitcom. But like, you know, think how different, like, I don't know, 
Avatar The Last Airbender is from Thundercats Roar. Yeah, yeah. Even though they're both, even though tech, I mean, Thundercats is an 11 minute, so I guess that is a format difference. But technically, they were both comedic shows for 6 to 11. But like, no, they aren't. They're for completely different demographics and they're completely different shows. Yeah, 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 really. Um, I feel like, yeah, animation is like kind of this thing where people are like, oh, well, it's that whole discourse, right? It's not a genre. Yeah. You know, da da da. Yeah, it's a, Um, it's a, yeah, it's a form, not a, not a genre yeah um yeah definitely and i mean i agree with that i mean that that's the thing it's like you have to look at animation the way you'd look at all live action like there's a yeah. really big there's a really big difference between iCarly and game of thrones but they are both live action tv shows yeah <laughs> yeah exactly it's gonna yeah it's exactly the same comparison between yeah like avatar and uh i don't know johnny test yeah like. yeah exactly but there, so that yes it's it's people just think about animation in a in a sort of reductionist way but i i would say the the simplest things that people need to think about with animation i mean you know it's really simple but it's just like you just have to think a little more visually uh you mm. you have to you have to imagine what's going to be happening on screen a little bit more i think than you do in most live action um like in if you're writing an uh, a live action sitcom you don't spend very much time figuring out the blocking the actors are gonna do because they'll figure it out the director will figure it out like you don't spend that much time being like what little pencil is the the actor gonna be playing with while he says this line that's the actor's job (laughs) yeah that's very true Um, do you feel like you think about that a lot more when you're writing for animation yeah definitely Mm because in animation if you if you Cause well, I mean, think about me, you know, like you do, you do writing and you also do, do board it storyboarding. So like, if I handed you a space, if I handed you three pages of script, that was Mm -hmm. literally just three pages of dialogue. And my only direction is the characters are like eating breakfast. Mm -hmm. Think how much work you'd have to do to figure out what they're actually doing for those three minutes. Which is, which is depending on the show, it's kind of interesting you mentioned that because depending on the show, sometimes something like that could happen. I feel like it's something that's kind of more common in, in adult animation mm-hmm. where it's like you get more like a lot of dialogue and then uh, you, and- you will pitch it to, um, that was kind of how we were working on on a, an adult show I was working on. Like we would have to pitch to the, the writer is kind of like, oh, this is kind of how I'm thinking about the blocking. Mm-hmm. And then they could kind of give directions based on the pitch. And yeah. And could just go and do the boards. Yeah. That makes sense. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. like, I think, and especially in a more adult show, I think it's totally fine to have three minutes of, of dialogue. I mean, think about, something yeah. like, <laughs> like, think about something like BoJack Horseman. They do, like, visual gags mm-hmm. in between the sketches, but most of the show is just dialogue. Uh, yeah. but I still think in animation, you need to put a little more thought into like, well, what is, what are they going to be doing? What are you looking at? Uh, yeah. because otherwise of one, cause like in, in live action, it would not be one person's job to solve that. There'd be, you know, the, the people who put those props together and the sets and the co- someone else would do costumes. The actors would have business. The director would come in and rehearse with the actors. But in animation, you were set, you were literally just saying, Hey, you one board artist solve all of this. 
That is so true. I could go on a big rant, but this is an episode about you. So I will <laughs> spare the audience. So um, I, I, I think that's the, I think that's the biggest difference is even in, yeah. a, even if your characters are just sitting and eating breakfast in animation, I think you have to think a little bit more about what are they doing and what's it going to look like. Even if the artist throws it out and comes up with something better, which they often do, you just, <laughs> you, you just don't want to give them nothing. I mean, I would see it with yeah. the Thundercats. Like, you know, we would we would do our yeah. best to like write out the action sequences and come up with gags, and we would give it to you you guys. And sometime half the time, the artist would come up with something infinitely better than we ever could. But the other half of the time, they would just write exact they would just draw exactly what we wrote. So you have to thank goodness we wrote something. You know, you have to have something <laughs> yeah. there because you don't know how much energy the board artist has that day. I think that's like, that's super true what you're saying. That was something that was also like really true on like um, a show like The Loud House for me was like, okay, I know that the scripts are solid that if I'm ever like feeling sick or not great, I could just do what's in the script and um and then everything will be fine. <laughs> yeah, that that that, yeah. that really is my rule for animation, animated yeah. scripts. It has to be detailed enough that if the artist does just literally draw what you wrote, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. It'll, it'll always yeah. be better if they have time and energy to come up with something better. But like, you have to be, there has to be a baseline or else it's all falls apart. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I think, yeah, that's why I'm like, I think I'm kind of, I'm, I'm leaning kind of more um, script driven shows for that reason. Cause it's like, it's just, it's already so much doing boards. Like it's nice to have, someone who's figured out stuff for you before you come in. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one, one nice thing about Thundercats and, and, and Aquaman and working mm. with Victor uh, Courtright in general was I think with that show, we, I think that's the best. I've, oh, I've one of my like yeah. dreams was always to find a happy medium because yeah. you know, a lot of my favorite shows are script are board driven shows. And I think that you get right. a lot of really amazing creativity when the artists have that freedom that you just are never going to get if it's uh, script driven. And I was always with right now, Kapow, we were always trying to figure, cause that was a script driven show. And we were mm-hmm. always trying to figure out a way to get more of the artists creativity in there. And we were just, we were having so much trouble just getting the show done on time at all that we never had time to like figure out like a more interesting pipeline. Um, and I think with Thundercats, what made it really work was that, cause you know, Victor is a, is an artist and a writer and his, yeah. his natural working style is essentially board driven because yeah. What, what he does when he works on his own is like writes out a little outline and then just boards. So, yeah, he's yeah, so yeah. That, yeah. that's like that's how he would work like in a perfect world for himself. So like mm-hmm. he definitely wanted, and you know, I won't I won't talk about Victor's motivations too much because you should just interview him. Uh, yeah, I'd love to get him on the show as well. Uh, but I'll I'll just say that like Thundercats probably would have been board driven in a perfect world for Victor, but we didn't have the schedule for it. We didn't have the time. Yeah. We didn't have, we, we couldn't give the board artists enough time for them to do it right. And yeah. so I think the, the fun, happy medium for Thundercats was that, you know, we wrote the scripts. We had our, our brilliant staff writer, Joan Ford, who did basically all, we had 50 episodes and I think she did 47 of the outlines oh, of, the, yeah, of, yeah, the, yeah. of the 52 episodes that we did. Um, and then we had freelance writers, which was sometimes me and Joan, uh, writing the scripts, uh, from Joan's, uh, outlines. But, uh, 
I think what was good about Thundercats was we would do the scripts, we'd get them as, as strong as we could. I do personally feel like the Thundercats scripts, if if you if you were going to literally draw them, they weren't quite funny enough. They needed, I think the scripts were solid and I think they worked, but I think in yeah. a they would have needed another week or two with a team of comedy writers to punch them up and make sure they were actually funny enough. Um, I, yeah, and- I think it's just like a thing of like, I agree in the sense that not that I don't, I, I really love the scripts. Those were some of my favorite scripts to work with, but I agree that it's just like, you guys were understaffed. Yes. <laughs> you yes. were like, <laughs> that's exactly. what I mean. No, you know, exactly. it's like, it's too much. It's too, you know. So, so what we were doing instead was Victor, what well, the big thing we did on Thundercats is we didn't record the actors ahead of time on, on most script driven animation the way the, the pipeline works is you write the scripts, then you record the actors, then you give that audio to the storyboard artists, and they pretty much board to that sort of radio play. And obviously stuff changes, you know, board artists mm-hmm. will come up with new jokes, the writers will come up with new jokes, stuff doesn't work, you you wind up scratching in some of the audio, and then you get ADR from the actors later, or you do pickups. Uh, hopefully mm-hmm. you do pickups, that's better than, than ADR. Uh, the difference being... Uh, Pickups are when you get the new lines before it's animated and you plug them into the boards before you animate it, which is better. Uh, yeah. If, if you animate the whole thing with scratch, then you have to do ADR and the actor has to go into the booth and match the lip flap you already have. And that's no fun. You do it. It's fine. But anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That happens. It, that happens more than you would think. It happens a lot. And it's totally fine. Yeah. ADR is great. But you want to do, you want to get as many pickups as you can. Uh, but on Thundercats, Victor would scratch uh, all the audio from the script and you guys would board to Victor's scratch. And what that meant was, is you just had so much more freedom to change stuff and rewrite it. And there was so much more expectation that you, you would all change things and rewrite it. And essentially the storyboard artists were doing that last joke punch up that every script needed. Um, And I think that that was, I think that worked. And I think that was a, a good, I think that we got the best of both worlds in a lot of ways. But I also know that there were points when even that compromise meant the storyboard artists were overworked. Like it would have been better if the scripts could have been more polished (laughs) and you could have done that less. (laughs) I think honestly, looking back, but I think that's, you know, that's just like how the studios are and like how much, you know, budget you have and all that stuff. But I think it was just like, it it would have been just like having another, an additional week or two Mm -hmm. for boards. I think that would have made it a lot easier oh, yeah. um, but I do think I mean I feel like for for me as a board artist I, I can't talk for everyone but for me I had already been boarding for a while so the schedules were tough but um it was really fun because I came from a lot of shows where we didn't really have a lot of wiggle room in terms of um in terms of like how much you could uh add to it so that was a lot of fun and also like being able to board in the style of victor which is like crazy camera angles Mm -hmm. uh fun really fun uh special poses so like expressions or just like like being able to break the model all the time that's that's a lot of fun and there's a lot of shows where you can't do that yes Um, no it was a it was a very it was a very free freeing experience for a lot of people also I just, I just gotta say that that chunk of time on Thundercats when the team you were on, uh, was was you you uh Jeremy Polgar directing and then you yeah. and Keith Peck is uh storyboarding just 
maybe one of the strongest three people board team that has ever been assembled in animation history. <laughs> I feel like, I feel like, yeah, that was kind of like, it was insane. Lightning in a bottle. <laughs> <laughs> like someone, if any, you know, if anyone's gonna, if, if you, if anyone listening hasn't, hasn't watched Thundercats Roar and you'd like to watch one episode of Thundercats Roar, check out a little episode called Panthro Plagiarized. <laughs> <laughs> that was, I, Working on this episode was so much fun because uh, we actually brainstormed a ton with Jeremy in the room. And for me, that was, it was honestly, it was kind of like what I hoped a feature would be like. So mm-hmm. it's like, you have a really strong script that you have a beginning, middle, and an end. You know where you're going. It all makes sense. It's funny. And then now your next step is like, okay, how do we kind of like uh, make the pacing kind of more fun? How do we do? Um, and uh we came up with a bunch of stuff and it was all like it was just like the three of us together in the room kind of like pitching on top of victor when when victor does his launches for episodes he's very thorough he's great because he gives a lot of directions Mm -hmm. like for example oh what if they broke a mountain and then (laughs) they're like nice yeah (laughs) um yeah and all those like notes passes every time we would pitch to you and victor there would always be like new jokes that we would come up with in the room because i will i will say that was an example of you all uh infinitely plussing what was actually written because like i'm pretty sure what was actually the script was like they throw some trees back and forth at each other like ping pong balls (laughs) 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 and then and then you all got in there and you're like the mountain is ripped apart and magma shoots up and he balls the magma up and he throws it and then panthro picks up water and cools the magma and then (laughs) slices the cool magma in half (laughs) yeah that was just so fun that was it's Man, just it's just really but but you're right like what the what the script had was just a very strong clear in comedy we would call it a game yeah uh which was this just strong clear game of yeah vulture uh vulture man in vulture man insisting he had invented this thing panthro had invented and every time vulture man said it it made panthro angrier <laughs> I thought it was, yeah, that was such a great episode. Like, uh, would you say that, because you said that in college you did sketch, mm-hmm. uh, you took writing classes and all that, but like, uh, did you, you did also improv, right? Yeah. So I did, I, I, had, I haven't performed that much improv, but I am, I am educated in improv. I did, <laughs> uh, when I, I'll go back to my, my origin. So, uh, I was doing uh, uh, sketch comedy and I was doing stand up, uh, and that did directly that directly led to my first job at Warner Brothers because uh, I was in college when YouTube was invented, mm. um, and so we were some of the first people to be posting comedy videos on YouTube. Uh, my my comedy troupe was called Zebro, and I think it's like we had like seven thousand YouTube subscribers. But that oh, really? but that made us like the third most subscribed comedy channel on YouTube. <laughs> wow! Uh, but then, like right above us, it was like some YouTuber who no one remembers anymore. Then Derek Comedy, which was Donald Glover's troupe. Oh wow! And then like us. <laughs> uh, so there was a big gap. The the gap between us and Donald Glover was big then, and it has only widened. <laughs> <laughs> uh but we were we were in there uh when i first uh 
and they they were in New York and we were in Boston and then we all moved to LA. Uh, when I first moved to LA, one of the first things that happened is I went to a party at Donald Glover's loft with like the entire cast of Community, which had just premiered. Uh, and I was like, yeah, I've made it. I'm in Hollywood, baby. Donald, I can explain to Donald Glover who I am. And he goes, oh, okay, I understand why you're here. <laughs> and then that never happened again. I have not met him a second time. <laughs> uh, Allison Bree is nice. <laughs> I've met none of these people a second time. <laughs> oh my gosh, so funny uh but uh that's that's the weird thing about moving out to hollywood is at the very beginning all the young people who have also just moved to hollywood and are about to become famous don't know to not invite you yet uh so (laughs) when you first move out here there's a lot more uh mingling of the uh of the classes and then eventually you're they stop and you stop getting invited to these parties (laughs) is is basically what happens once once you're all in your 30s they know that you they don't need to invite you anymore um but (laughs) that's my hollywood story you talked you talked about how people only hear about the successes uh in hollywood so I, I would say that one of the one of the things that's 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 tough is as as yeah as you you especially if you go to like an entertainment school like I did and and like a lot mm-hmm. of uh, people in animation did there's also this thing that happens where like you and your peers all start at the same level because you're all right out of college and then there's this drift where like some of your peers become very very successful for example my comedy troupe also included Daniel Shiner who is one half of Daniels who made everything everywhere all at once. Oh, wow. So some of my early videos and animations in college I made with him, with Daniel Scheinert. So interesting. Wow, that's so interesting. That's so cool, though. Like, oh, yeah, you know, no, it's great. Like, and I still, you know, yeah. he, I, we're, we're still friends. I know him. He actually wrote uh, on one episode of Right Now Kapow. Uh, right af- really? Right after he did Swiss Army Man, he was really burnt out doing movies. And, he, and we were like, hey, you want to come by our writer's room and write some sketches with us uh, one week? Uh, and he did. Uh, and so if you, uh, uh, if you want to watch one episode of right now, Kapow, you can check out an episode called, uh, radical mutants slash my fair peasant. Uh, (laughs) and that is an episode co-written by, uh, one half of Daniels. (laughs) I love that. That's so cool. Uh, And it is, and it is a very good episode. We was, it was towards the end of our season and uh, we were a little burnt out and our writers had pitched a thousand sketches at that point. And it was nice mm-hmm. to have someone come in with some new energy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, the- so, uh, so with YouTube, uh, we were making YouTube videos. Uh, we, we got featured on the front page of YouTube a couple times, which was a thing that used to happen. It used to be, what? there used to be no algorithm. So when you went to YouTube, everyone saw the same YouTube is how it used to work. And so if you were on the front page, about a million people would see your video, which felt like a lot back then. Uh, And so the short version is uh, because of uh, alumnus from our college, uh, we got scouted by this little program Warner Brothers was doing where they hired a bunch of people who had had some early Internet comedy success uh, and they flew us out to L.A. and for about a year I was making like weird little comedy videos for Warner Brothers, uh, trying to see, like, we're just trying to figure out how do you go viral? Can you make money on this? Oh, you can't? Well, you kids are all fired then, uh, <laughs> was basically what happened. Uh, but 
because I was slowly gravitating towards animation, the video that I had used to audition for this project was this really, really limited 2D animation that I made where I had my friend do these really crude drawings of like comic strip characters like Garfield and Mary Worth and Mark Trail. And Mm -hmm. I chopped them up in Photoshop and I used uh, Final Cut's motion controls to just keyframe them bouncing around like they were on popsicle sticks, essentially. Mm. Uh, And then a no lip flap. uh, And that was it. And I made a little like three minute animation uh, that uh, that's still on YouTube. It's called uh, Protectors of the Earth. Uh, You can find that on YouTube. Uh, And that got me my first job at Warner Brothers. And then as part of that weird program, me and my friend Alex Barrett came up with a pitch for an animated TV show. Uh, And we pitched it to this program and they liked it. And so we produced a five minute pilot of it and we produced it with Warner Brothers Animation. And that meant that I met some producers at Warner Brothers Animation. And... Uh, and I met a longtime animation writer and producer, Alan Burnett, uh, who was mm-hmm. one of the, the producers and head writers on Batman the Animated Series, uh, in addition to a million other things. But I think that's the credit he's most proud of. Uh, and when my weird internet job was ending, I handed those three scripts I told you about. I handed my Futurama mm-hmm. script, my office script, and my original pilot, and I gave them to Alan, and I said, uh, I'm fired, here's these scripts, goodbye forever. Uh, <laughs> and then I was unemployed for three months, and at the end of those three months, I got a call uh, from the office of the then brand new president of Warner Brothers Animation, Sam Register, saying, hey, you want to come in here and help Alan write some Scooby-Doo DVDs and then have that be your job for the next 15 years? <laughs> wow, that's so crazy, though. That's great that, like, your scripts... Did you have an agent at the time? No, I did not. Oh, wow. So you were just like, oh, here's my scripts. And, like, fortunately, they ended up in, like, Sam's pile of two reads. Yeah, well, it was really Alan. It was it was Alan... So the the reason it worked, because you can't just hand people scripts on the street, is uh, the reason it worked is because I had met Alan a couple of times. Uh, I had pitched him this this TV show idea so he they could mm-hmm. he could like give us feedback. He he knew that he sort of liked me. He knew that he, that my TV show idea that I did with my friend was like funny and interesting. And so when I gave him those three scripts, he was willing. To, I think he only read one. I think he just read my original pilot. Um, Mm. and he was willing to read it. And then he wanted essentially a writer's assistant to help him with all the, the Scooby-Doo DVD, Scooby-Doo DVDs and Tom and Jerry DVDs that he was in charge of. And so he Mm. told Sam, oh, I've got a guy. Let's hire this guy, Marley. Mm. Mm. So it was, it was, I mean, the, the thing people always say is the, and I'm sure other people have said a version of this, uh, on your, your show before is that you need, you need luck and you need to be prepared for when the luck happens. Like, yeah, I, I needed that lucky in of, I met this guy right when he was looking for an entry level writer. I didn't know Mm -hmm. that it's not a position that existed before. No one did my job at Warner brothers before or after. I'm the only one that ever did it. (laughs) Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. So there wasn't someone doing my job before. And when I eventually graduated out of it, I was not replaced. So (laughs) it was just literally the luck of that position even existing in the moment when I gave Alan the scripts, but I had been working on those scripts for years. Right. Exactly. And they were, and they were, they were workshopped and polished. And I, you know, I wrote all of them for classes, which meant, you know, whole, you know, 15 other 
you know, writing students all gave me feedback. Professors gave me feedback. Uh, a couple of them I had sent to festivals and gotten like, I never, I never won anything, but I got to like the final round of a couple script writing festivals. Um, and so like, if I didn't have those scripts already ready, like when I met Alan would have been too late to start writing a script to give him. I, th- I needed to have them already. Right. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so that, yeah, that's yeah. really the trick is you, you need to do the, you need to do the work and the preparation to be ready when that lucky op- opening happens, because you never know when it's going to happen. Uh, but unfortunately you do also need that lucky opening. Like those three scripts would have never done me any good if I hadn't had the perfect person to give them to at the perfect time, which was, mm. you know, that was luck. Yeah. 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 But you also, but here's the thing though. You also kind of had the thought of being like, well, uh like oh i have these scripts by the way like if you want to like you know because oh. like, i feel like sometimes i just don't i i don't think about doing that kind of stuff you know i'm like oh well i met that person nice mm-hmm. <laughs> you and, know? and that's absolutely true too i mean like you know my my the program that i was in you know there were like 12 of us and i am not the only one that met alan and i am not the only one that had a script and when our job was sort of winding down also coincidentally alan was in the same like floor office floor as us even though he was not part of our program so that another bit of luck was it was very easy for me to give him some scripts uh because mm-hmm. i would see him in the office getting coffee and stuff every day mm-hmm. um and so when i gave those three scripts to alan and then i told especially my two other friends who like were interested in animation and knew him also that i had done that both of them were like oh shoot that's a good idea i should do that and they did and he also liked their scripts but he only needed one guy (laughs) (laughs) and i mean literally like you know i think my scripts are very good but like if he had gotten all three of our packets at the same time and if he had been reviewing our stuff equally i don't know if he would have hired me maybe but like, I, I truly think part of it was he was like, well, Marley was first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, totally. I mean, because like for yeah. the first for the first year that I was there, Alan fully intended to hire my friend Alex, who had done this the thing with me, because we'd both we had it was really Alex's idea the show that we did. And mm-hmm. the whole first year I was there, Alan was always like, oh yeah, we got to get Alex over here. We got to get Alex over here. Well, obviously, if we ever if there's another opening, it goes to Alex. And there just never was. There never was another opening. And then Alex moved into advertising and just wound up following a completely different, probably more financially lucrative career. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, love it. Yeah, it all worked <laughs> out for Alex Barrett, but <laughs> he's not. And, but he's not an animation writer. <laughs> Is that a show that ever, um, so did you, for that show, you ended up doing like a pilot for it and then did anything happen with it or is it less, like- less than nothing. Uh, so we made a five minute animated pilot for it. Uh, it was animated, it was produced by Warner Brothers animation, but you know, we outsourced the actual production. So six point harness made it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Alex Barrett is the one who's an artist. So he did the designs and everything for it. Um, and and we recorded real, real non-union actors, but they were, they were real. Uh, A couple of them are, (laughs) a couple of them are are very successful voice actors now, uh, which is cool. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, literally nothing happened with it. Like we never, Mm. never got any, once it was finished, we never got any feedback. No one ever acknowledged that they saw it. Uh, it it was just not. It was like just literally put, it was like finished and just neatly, politely put on a shelf. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. It never like aired anywhere. Or oh, like definitely went on never. Any DVDs. Definitely yeah. never aired anywhere. In, in hindsight, I'm not sure where it could have aired. The demographic was weird. We were basically trying to do like deg- animated Degrassi. 
Um, mm. And so it was very much for like teenagers. It was very like joke. Like it was mm. characters like you know having affairs and doing drugs, and it was like a, oh, yeah. it was like a teen. It was honestly a little bit uh, a little bit inspired by Clone High. Like we were trying to like parody teen dramas in animation. But in a oh, way, wow. but in a way that would not have been appropriate for children. So I literally do not know where that would have aired. You could probably do it now with streaming. Um, oh right, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But back then, it, the only place it could have aired would have been on the end after Degrassi. It would have been like if they didn't want it, no one was gonna want it. Yeah. <laughs> so specific. That's so interesting. It's cool though that you guys kind like uh, went for something like very. Like, cause sometimes I feel like when pitching, like when I talk to my friends, when we talk about pitching, we are always kind of like concerned about like, well, is that going to like it? Is, is, is it going to be able to air anywhere? Like, you know, more concerned about what other people think, what the audience might think rather than what we like, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm noticing this trend a lot, um, with, uh, I guess, well, not just my generation, but also like younger generations. And I wonder what like you think about like care, like what's the right amount of like, because when we had Jonan Baskas on the show mm-hmm. and we were talking about how he was writing um, Johnny the Homis- Homicidal Maniac, he was like, yeah. well, I just want to do something that I thought was funny. And I was like, oh, this is so smart. This is something. And I feel like sometimes it's something that we can forget along the path of making entertainment, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. I think that is the, I think that is the eternal balancing those two impulses of something that you're passionate about and something that you love and you're going to be excited about, but that then someone will also buy. I think that, that, that pendulum is just the eternal struggle of, of our industry, especially in TV. I mean, that's the thing that kind of stinks about TV compared to Mm. movies and although honestly in animation it's probably doesn't really matter because animation is so expensive but like it is possible to make a movie that is purely art like you can yeah you can you can you can follow the white whale of thief and the cobbler and spend your whole life making it if you really want to it's something you (laughs) it's something you can do that's probably a bad example because it didn't really work out but you know what i mean yeah 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 yeah. you there are there are absolutely films and animated films that are are purely works of art and meant meant to be appreciated that way all tv is commercial art um Mm -hmm. it has to be there's no there's no independently produced passion project television show um Mm -hmm. i guess you could do a web series that way uh but we wouldn't call it a television show like to to get Mm -hmm. on a tv network or to get on a streamer someone has to think they're gonna make a lot of money uh by doing that Right. And so yeah. TV specifically, and, and obviously feature, big theatrical feature animation uh, has that also because it's just too expensive. You can't, you can't make The Incredibles yeah. by yourself, no matter how much you might want to. Um, that I just, yeah, I think that it's, there. you're always balancing if, basically, your options are you have to take into consideration the commercial aspect of will someone buy this and who is that person? Or you have to get lucky. You have to make exactly what you want to make and hope that coincidentally there is someone who wants to buy that. Yeah, that's true. Um, and that's a, and that's an option. You know, I mean, it's all luck. Any, I mean, honestly, you have to get if if because the because the the thing is, even if even if you set out to make a perfectly sellable, perfectly commercial thing, 
you still have to get lucky. You st- someone still has to want to buy it, and you don't you don't really know what everybody what anyone wants, and they don't know what they want. The other thing is yeah. sometimes you could pitch something someone something they would never ask for, but something about it clicks with them, and they're like, oh, of course, that's what we want. Um, mm-hmm. So it's it's all a mix. I mean, I just it just depends on what kind of thing you're doing, who you're pitching it to. Uh, but I think you just always have to balance those things. I mean, I do, I do, what I will say is you should not sit down and try to algorithm your way into the perfect sellable pitch because you'll never get mm-hmm. it right. If you could do that, Netflix would be doing it. And as we've seen, they can't. <laughs> uh, so that is, you, you should not just, you should not on purpose try to soullessly make something just to sell it because you'll probably fail. Uh, so you should always make something that you're also passionate about and that you also like and are excited about because it's just the only way to get lucky and make something other people are going to be excited about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Um, the ol- the only caveat to that is my career sometimes is sometimes Warner Brothers comes to me and says, we're going to make a Flintstones show starring Pebbles and Bam Bam, whether you make it or not. Would you like to make it? And then I say yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a slightly different process. <laughs> uh, sometimes that's how it works. Sometimes Warner Brothers, you know, Warner Brothers came to me and Victor and they said, we want to make an animated Aquaman miniseries. Uh, we know that James Wan is interested in producing something like that, and we think it would be really smart to to work to jump off the success of his live action Aquaman movie. And Warner Brothers said to Victor, "We think doing Aquaman in your style could be cool. Do you want to play around with it and see what comes out?" And uh, that's how it happened. So it's like obviously we made something that we were excited about and passionate about. And it especially, you know, really anything Victor makes comes from a, a pretty personal place because he's just a very uh, personal kind of auteur kind of uh, creator. But also mm-hmm. we didn't we didn't have to think will Warner Brothers buy this. They told us they would like they they came to us and mm-hmm. said, we want to buy this. Make it, please. And if we had done a really bad job, they would have said, oh, never mind. You're fired. But like <laughs> they, they did ask us to do it. Same thing with right now, Kapow, like. The way I, the way I'll, I'll, I'll do both versions. So the way I, I sold right now Kapow to Warner Brothers, cause there's two steps, right? So Warner Brothers mm-hmm. is the studio, but then we, mm-hmm. but Warner Brothers does, does not, and did not then, and does not now control an actual network. So mm-hmm. Warner Brothers animation can't green light shows. Uh, mm-hmm. Someone has to buy it from them. Sometimes it's a sister company. Sometimes it's Cartoon Network, which used to be owned by Turner. Uh, and now we're all Warner Media, Warner Discovery. Um, a lot of times, you know, it's HBO Max, which is also Warner Discovery, uh, but it's it's not Warner Brothers itself. Sam Register is not deciding what shows get made. He's deciding what shows to develop, and then we have to sell them. So mm-hmm. the way I sold right now Kapow to Warner Brothers, the way I got them to option it, I did have an agent at that point. While I was on Mad, I got an agent uh, and had that agent get me a, get me initially raises on Mad, so I didn't have to ask for my own raises. Uh, <laughs> the biggest reason you want a, a Agents in animation, agents aren't amazing necessarily at getting you work. Uh, I mean, basically, well, whatever, I'll do this too. Okay, so here's the, yeah, here's, yeah, the, yeah. here's the deal if you're a writer. There's three things you could have. You could have an agent, you could have a manager, or you could have a lawyer. So mm-hmm. an agent, theoret- here's the, the theoretical differences are, an agent 
is is sending you out for work. An agent theoretically knows who's looking for writers and and has mm. writers that they suggest to people. That doesn't happen so much in animation, but that's the idea. Uh, and then an agent gets 10% of whatever you make because they're helping you get the work. Uh, an agent also cannot legally uh, advise you on legal matters, but any agent knows how contracts work and can give you perfectly good non-legally binding legal advice for your contracts. Uh, mm -hmm. And agents can negotiate your contract for you and agents can ask for raises and also an agent would then be invoicing for you, which if you've ever been a freelancer, you know, invoicing sucks. Uh, and it's mm -hmm. cool to have someone else whose whole job is to make sure you get your money. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for the low, low price of giving them 10% of it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then a manager, uh, which I've never had, uh, but I, as I understand, a manager is more actually helping you. Theoretically, the idea of a manager is they are actually helping you figure out what your career should even be and like giving you advice and man basically managing your career helping you put your career together plan it out they're a little more like a, a life coach for your career and the big mm -hmm. difference is that a manager is legally allowed to be a producer on one of your projects so which an agent is not uh so mm -hmm. a manager can put a show together and then work on that show uh an agent can't do that um mm -hmm. and you would also give a manager a percentage of your money and then a lawyer like you would imagine just negotiates contracts um and doesn't do anything else uh, and in kids animation, you should not have all three. That's a waste of your money. You should just have one. Uh, yeah. because in, in kids animation, any of those three people, an agent, a manager, or a lawyer can negotiate your contracts for you. And that's all you really need. <laughs> um, so that's personally, I like to have that one person be an agent, uh, because, uh, it is nice to have some help, like getting work and scouting work. Um, but the point is, don't have all three. If you're in live action, you're making so much money, you can have all three, and it's probably worth it. Uh, but in animation, we're in a different union. We don't get paid as much. Don't give away 35% of your income. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. That would be, And that would be crazy, too, because then, like, wouldn't that be, like, a conflict of interest anyway between the manager and the agent? No, a lot of people have both. Uh, I, oh, really? In, in, li in live action, it's pretty common to have both. Oh, interesting. Because, like I said, they, they do slightly different things. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Cause yeah. like a yeah. Uh, but in 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 my personal experience in animation, I don't know why what what why you would ever have both. Um, and if you're only gonna have one, I feel like people with only an agent have a better outcome than people with only a manager for 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 writers. Mm. Um, if you're an artist, you probably only need a lawyer. Uh, realistically. Uh, yeah. But it's it's a little different for artists, so I don't want to give definitive advice. But no matter what, you need somebody negotiating your contracts for you, and you need somebody asking for raises for you, because you don't want to do it yourself. It's awkward. Yeah, it really is. I feel like it also kind of depends as an artist, kind of what you're trying to do. If you're trying to pitch shows uh, and create a show, then yeah, I think an agent is like necessary, because they kind of know, uh, like who's an executive, who are the people you have to talk to, yeah. <laughs> like meeting people and all that jazz. Yeah, if you're not trying to create your own show, uh, it's not as big a deal because your contracts are always just going to be your salary and that's pretty straightforward. But any anytime yeah. you're selling the rights to something that you create, or honestly, even if you're not selling the rights, even if you're coming on board to develop a Jurassic Park show for yeah. someone, you want an agent or a manager making sure you're getting the best deal because there's a lot of money to be made on a Jurassic Park show. You want to make sure you're getting as much of it as you can. Yeah. Especially yeah. because you don't own Jurassic Park. You know, you got to make sure you're getting paid yeah. while you're working on it. Um, so the way I sold uh, right now about a Warner Brothers is I was a staff writer on Mad 
uh, Mad has not, it hasn't had a lot of longevity. I don't know that people remember, but Mad was actually a hit show. Uh, we did four seasons. We did 103 mm-hmm. episodes. We were nominated for an Emmy. Um, we were we were in that exact same era with Adventure Time and Regular Show. And so that meant we were the third highest rated show on Cartoon Network. <laughs> Yeah, but I like remember. that's a big deal. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I remember my sister would watch it a lot with my dad. Mad. Oh, yeah, thank you. yeah. Uh, so there was a you know, I mean, Teen Titans Go exists because it was one of the one of the main directors on Mad co-created Teen Titans Go, and the point of it was to sort of have the pipeline and comedic style of Mad. That's so interesting. Aaron Horvath. I, Aaron Horvath was one of the main directors on Mad, and then he co-created, co-developed Teen Titans Go with Michael Jelinek. I feel like that's so crazy. I thought Teen Titans Go was older than Mad. No, that's no, so funny. So it was. It, they started uh, Horvath. Basically, Horvath was you know incredibly talented and could have worked anywhere he wanted. And so after a year or two of Mad, I think he got a job offer somewhere else. I don't remember where or how definite that was but basically warner brothers knew they were they could lose him uh and they didn't mm. want to and so they're like uh please stay here's a raise and a better title and do you want to develop this other show <laughs> uh and so yeah that's the the teen titans go which then became you know one of the most successful shows of its generation was a direct like because of mad it wouldn't have existed if, if they hadn't made mad um, wow. And then over That's on so and then over on Nickelodeon, Breadwinners was created by two Mad people who met on Mad and who's and the Breadwinners style was very much the way they're like Gary Doodle's Mad sketches were exactly like Breadwinners. That's so interesting. Yeah, I remember I remember listening to an interview. I forgot where it was, but they talk about that that they met on Mad, the artist and the writer. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was Gary Doodles and then Steve Borst was the writer who was one of the other. There were like four, I would say four or five writers who were on mad significantly more than anyone else. And that was, and Boris, Steve Borst was one of them. And he's one of the main Teen Titans Go writers also. So that's another way that Teen Titans Go has a lot of mad. And then the other, the other, uh, the other, the least successful of the shows that only exist because of mad is my show right now. Kapow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which was not a hit show because it aired on a network that was almost dead when we aired, which was Disney, X- <laughs> Disney XD. That's also the thing though. I feel, I remember the first time I saw, uh, right now, Kapow, I I went in uh, to meet someone at Disney TV and I saw it on the TV and I was like, that's so interesting. This is like so different from Disney's style. So, yeah, I mean, the, so, okay, all right, I keep I keep jumping ahead. So the way I sold right now, Kapow to Warner Brothers is Mad was 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 wrapping up. Me and my friend Justin Becker, who also went to college with me at Emerson, also did Zebro comedy with me, was also in that Warner Brothers program with me. Um, I, I managed to get him a job writing on mad and, uh, and then, so the two of us together, basically, uh, Warner brothers was like, Oh, mad's probably wrapping up. We really like you guys. You should pitch us some, some stuff. And so what I did is I pitched Warner brothers, five original adult animated shows and they said no. And then I pitched them five original, uh, kids animated shows, but like regular scripted story, not sketch shows. Uh, and they Mm -hmm. said no. And then they said, we'd really like to do another sketch show with you. Can you pitch us a sketch show? So then me and Justin said, okay, what if we do an animated sketch show? And they said, sold. (laughs) (laughs) That's not totally true. We did pitch them the idea. We did pitch them the the conceit of Right Now Kapow, which was the conceit of Right Now Kapow was that 
working on Mad while Adventure Time and Regular Show were the most popular cartoons in existence uh, mm. was a little, little disheartening because obviously even though people liked our show, they did not like it as much as they liked Adventure Time and Regular mm-hmm. Show. Uh, and so we were kind of looking at that being like, okay, what could we do differently in our next sketch show to try to like bridge that gap? And what we came up with was we were like, okay, well, when you watch, you know, Monty Python or Kids in the Hall or Key and Peele, they don't do a lot of reoccurring characters. They do some, but that's not really the appeal. The appeal is that you love the actors. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're watching SNL and Kirsten Wig comes out, you're like, oh, I like her. I, I don't even know who her character is yet. I know I already like her or, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Keenan, you know, we've been I'm, I'm the right age where I've been watching Keenan Thompson do sketch comedy for my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm very invested in him as a performer at this point. Um, and so like, we were like, how can we do that in animation? And so the idea we came up with is we cast six uh, comedians to be the cast in right now. Kapow. They were all, they were all, they are all amazing voice actors. Some of them had worked in voice acting before, but they were also all stand up and sketch comedians. And they were a lot, a lot of them were people we'd worked with in live action, stand up and sketch. Uh, and our idea was, We'll have these six actors do all the voices, but our big trick was kind of like the Muppets. Our idea was, so, you know, you've, you've drawn ice cream on the screen for people watching uh, on uh, the YouTube. That was one of our characters. And the way it worked was that was Kyle Kinane, the stand-up. Mm-hmm. And anytime Kyle did a voice, anytime if he played a barber or if he played a little kid or if he played a teacher or if he played a cop, he played a genie. Anytime he did the voice, that character had an ice cream for a head. Mm. And the idea was that way, you know, it's Kyle, you know, it's the same guy. Even if you don't, you know, you're Mm -hmm. a kid, you don't know it's Kyle Kinane, you know, that's ice cream. That's all I I know ice cream. And, you know, some of, you know, Kyle kind of always sounds like Kyle because that's the kind of performer he is. But some of our actors like Baron Vaughn played uh, Moonhead and Baron Vaughn is like an amazing voice actor. He can sound a hundred different ways. Sometimes he'd be doing completely different voices. You would never, ever know it was him, except he always had that Moonhead. So that way you would always know it was him and you would just understand, oh, Moonhead has a lot of range. <laughs> oh, Ice Cream Head really doesn't, but that's okay. He's really funny. <laughs> um, and so that was our, that was our pitch. And so Warner Brothers was like, great, we love it. So then the cool thing about it and the only reason the show got made is it, so at that point, Warner Brothers was really only selling shows to Cartoon Network, but Cartoon Network really only had the budget to buy like two Warner Brothers shows at a time. Um, mm-hmm. And so there were only ever really two Warner Brothers shows at a time, uh, maybe sometimes three. Uh, and there had just been that, uh, I don't know if you guys have talked about this, but there was that like 2010s, 2011, basically action show implosion where like every mm-hmm. network canceled like four action shows. Oh, so, yeah, yeah, So that yeah. was like, uh, it's when Young Justice got canceled the first time. It was where the Batman got canceled. Uh, Green Lantern animated series got canceled. That was all on the Warner Brothers side. But then at Cartoon Network, uh, it was like Symbiotic Titan and Generator Rex uh, and Secret Saturdays, I think. And then in Disney, mm-hmm. it was Tron and Motor City. Mm-hmm. At Nickelodeon, I think it was, uh, I think Koro almost got canceled, but then they brought it back. Basically, everyone was like, oh, shoot, we're not making action shows anymore. Um, and so Warner Brothers, you know, especially at that point, then just had like two comedies. We just had Mad and, and Teen Titans and that was it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they were trying, it was a very brief window where they're like, we got to sell shows other places. And so a big point 
part of the problem with Warner Brothers is they mostly do intellectual property, library characters, stuff Warner Brothers already yeah. owns. And Disney's not going to buy a Scooby-Doo show because that's promoting right. Warner Brothers mascot, right? You know? Right. Uh, Warner Brothers won't let them sell a Superman show to Nickelodeon. They don't want Superman on Nickelodeon. Warner Superman is Warner Brothers guy. Uh, yeah. So the idea of us doing an original show was that meant we could sell it to whoever wanted it. Yeah. So we pitched it to, at the time, it was pre-streaming. So Netflix existed, but they weren't doing original kids animation back then. Uh, I don't think they were doing original anything back then. So uh, we pitched it to Cartoon Network, Nickelodeon, and Disney XD. And the way it went was, uh, basically, we pitched it to Cartoon Network, and they were like, oh, yeah, this is pretty cool. This is basically the kind of thing we do here at Cartoon Network. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I like it, but we don't really have a place for it because we do this already. Uh, and then we pitched it to Disney XD, and they were like, whoa, this is like nothing we've ever seen before. And we're really, <laughs> and we're really interested. And then we pitched it to Nickelodeon, and they were like, oh. This is like nothing we've ever seen before, and we are calling security. <laughs> Leave our offices immediately. <laughs> uh, and so because we were able to pitch it to three places, one of them was interested. Uh, and so we wound up <laughs> developing the show with Disney and, uh, and airing uh, our 26 episodes on Disney XD. Uh, and in some territories internationally, right now Kapow was the very last thing to ever air on Disney XD before it was shut down forever. <laughs> wow. I've, I've seen oh. footage where someone's like, right now Kapow credits cut to goodbye Disney XD Africa. We don't exist anymore. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's awesome. <laughs> so we, we closed out the channel in some territories. <laughs> Wow, that's so crazy. Uh, so that's, I'm pretty proud of that, actually. Uh, <laughs> and uh, But that was a big boost for me. So a big thing, and a thing that stinks about uh, kids animation especially, but animation in general, is on the in the Writers Guild, whether you're live action or animated, because uh, some animated shows are in the Writers Guild, uh, and then you're, uh, you have a better contract. Mostly adult animation is in the Writers yeah. Guild, but that's not the rule. Some adult is Animation Guild, some adult is Writers Guild, uh, kids could be uh, Writers Guild, nothing's stopping them. Uh, it's all very complicated and a, a subject for a different three-hour-long podcast. Uh, but uh, be one of the downsides to the way it works in the Animation Guild, and we're trying to change this with our new contract is there's no steps really you're basically just a staff writer and then maybe you could be a story editor which is the title for like a head writer um mm -hmm. and then that's it there's nowhere else to go until you've created your own show yeah um and so for me i was a staff writer for five years i was a staff writer for four seasons of mad and then one season while i was developing right now kapow i was a staff writer for one season on be cool scooby-doo and then i just jumped right to ep creator um mm -hmm. and that's you know i that that boosted my career and I've permanently stayed up at that producer level, but like, that's not really, it's not a great progression. It would have been, it would have been better if I could have moved up the ranks and worked my way up, but there was no way to do that. You're just a staff writer until you luck out and sell a show. Uh, and that's not how it works in live action In live action. You would like get promoted every year and, and be like running a show you didn't create for a year before you even worry about trying mm -hmm. to sell your own show. I feel like it's because in animation, it's just like so many of the jobs are condensed. Mm -hmm. uh, and as a writer, like you're so early in the pipeline that like some, a lot of the shows, the writers are done when the boards start 
or like there's a little bit of overlap but sometimes yeah. the writers are done and before like even the designers come on or and like, the, the sort yeah. of crazy thing is that's happening now more and more in live action because what streaming is doing is the episode orders are getting shorter and shorter and mm-hmm. if you're only making six episodes of a marvel disney plus show you're finished writing it before the show's being made yeah, um, yeah. and a mm-hmm. lot of those marvel shows do just have like four staff writers and then the head writer and that's it and that's more like an animated show yeah yeah um, mm-hmm. and it kind of stinks because you know we always talk about how we want animation writers and live action writers to have more parody, but I wanted us to be more like them, but instead they're becoming more like us. Yeah. <laughs> it's so it's going in the wrong direction. Anytime a live action writer tells me about like sort of how much worse their job is getting and how much harder their industry is getting, they basically just described to me the way animation has always been. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's so hard. I feel, and especially now, I don't know if you look at that uh, still, because now it's not really YouTube shorts anymore. I mean, there is YouTube animators, but there's also like on Instagram or TikTok, mm-hmm. I'm seeing more and more people yep. get really popular. Like I was just watching, I just, this morning I was scrolling and I saw this uh, like animal facts or whatever. And it's, it's almost kind of like a sketch show. You have like a couple of little animals. I think it's all made in Blender. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'm like, okay, like people are making cartoons by themselves and <laughs> like, like quality, like TV quality cartoons. And I'm just like, all right, well, now I guess you got to be able to do everything by yourself. <laughs> yeah. But that's it's always, like, I mean, basically ever since Flash animation started, there's always been people who could true. do that. Cause that's like, you know, it used to be Newgrounds. I think it's, I think Newgrounds yeah. still exists. Yeah. Newgrounds is still around. Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, but yeah, definitely. And that is also like, my, you know, in some ways, the way I got my career started can't be replicated because it was so many like weird one offs. Like, you know, the program I was hired to do at Warner Brothers doesn't exist anymore and really stopped existing when they ended when I stopped working there. And like the job I got at Warner Brothers Animation doesn't exist anymore. But the the universal thing that I did that I still think is the right advice is is the two things. So it's, the, you know, the scripts that I wrote. But then also, if I if I had not made those super limited animations myself and put them on YouTube. If I had not made the sketch videos that got featured on YouTube, I never would have gotten that first job and I wouldn't have met Alan. So like, especially if you're a writer, unfortunately you can't just write. Uh, You either need to do the other jobs as best as you can, or you need to team up with people who can do those other jobs because no one would have read my script if I hadn't made some videos on my own. I agree. I feel like, uh, I feel like that's very true. People just like having something to, it's something that I'm starting to realize as well. It's like, people just don't want to read. They just want to watch something. Yeah. Um, so even if it's like, even if it's, um, I think it was with worthy kids that we talked about, um, metal, metal, uh, the, um, ah, I can't never say the word, but it's the Jack Black uh, tenacious D mm-hmm. thing that he did, which is just like posted. Like, it's just like, sharpie drawings Mm -hmm. over a full hour but it's still like people will watch it yeah you just got to do something i mean you know dan you know dan Harmon was also like a tv writer and stuff but like really him and justin roiland like were able to explode because of channel 101 and making the like Mm. they made their you know there wasn't youtube so they made their own platform to post web series Mm -hmm. yeah that's and like that was you know it's not the only reason they have their careers but it was part of it um yeah and like it's just, yeah, it's like you need, if you want to be a writer in particular, 
You need mm-hmm. really good, really solid scripts. But to get someone to be willing to read those scripts, you probably have to do something else. And that can be comedy. That can be sketch comedy. That can be stand-up comedy. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a, a very common way to break into TV comedy writing is just to do comedy yourself. And the good thing about stand-up, the good thing about sketch is you have to be a good performer, obviously, but you don't have to be a professionally you don't have to be good enough to perform professionally to let your writing mm-hmm. stand out and show that you're good at writing. Yeah, and I was going to say also, because you have all this experience in like improv, sketch, uh, you've also done stand-up. Uh, I think it's it's kind of like a common thread that I see even now, like working in animation uh, on like direct to streamings, I see a lot of writers from like SNL or like from like sketch. Mm-hmm. And um, and even in the episode that we did with Alex Hirsch, he, um, he said that he was doing competitive improv when he was in high school. Mm-hmm. So I think all of those skills are just like, like, you know, like you've been like, work, like you had those three scripts, but you were also like, you've been working on on that craft through all these other. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, and I've written more, yeah. I've written more sketches than I've written spec, like at at the point when I first started working professionally, I had written a lot more sketches than I had written TV episodes uh, mm. because I wrote three TV episodes as samples. I'd written, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of sketches so I could perform them. Mm. And I also had a sketch packet. Um, uh, if you want, if you want to actually get hired to write sketches, uh, you need a sketch packet. You need to write like five or six sketches and put it together and be like, here's my best sketches. Um, that's the, another kind of writing sample that you can have. I think I also gave Alan my sketch packet, but I don't think he read it. Um, oh, I was going to ask you, you think he read only the sketches cause they're shorter. <laughs> no, I, I'm pretty sure he only, so the other thing is if you're, I do think in this day and age, especially, but, and, and also, well, Definitely when I was getting in, because it's what I did. But I think now, too, you should start with an original pilot. I think that's the most important thing to yeah. have. Every time yeah. I've given someone options, what they want to read is my original pilot. So I think yeah. it's good, especially if you're in school, definitely write some spec scripts of other shows. It's in, it's invaluable practice. And you at some point, you need to sit down and write an Always Sunny script or a Rick and Morty script or some show you like. You need to just try to write it. Um, and you'll, you'll learn how to write by copying a show that you like. And also being a staff writer, your job is to copy shows. So you need to learn, you need to learn how to do that. But for a sample, you want one of your samples to be an original spec pilot. Um, cause that's usually these days, that's usually what people want to watch, want to read. And I think the main reason is that because of streaming and cable, and this has just gotten more and more, the chances we're all watching different shows now. And, and no show has the audience that the biggest shows used to have. So like in the nineties, if you wrote a friend script, every single person you would ever meet in TV will be familiar with friends and they'll know mm-hmm. the characters. And even if they don't like the show, they've seen it and they'll, they'll be able to tell if you did a good job writing a friend script. But like, say, you know, if I wanted to write a script based on one of my favorite comedies now, I'd probably do like what we do in the shadows there is no guarantee the individual person I'm talking to has actually seen what we do in the shadows because yeah. a hit show now has a 10th of the audience that a hit show had 20 years ago. Would you say that specking a script of like an older type of show, like friends, the office or that where it hits that everybody saw is still like a good idea or like Gen- eh. generally I would say no, because mm. the usual, if you're going to write, Here's the other reason to write an original pilot. If you write an original pilot, nobody knows when you wrote it. 
you can just <gasps> you can just say you wrote it just now, even if you wrote it four years ago. They don't know. Uh, it's an original <laughs> pilot, um, and as long as it's still you know. You know don't use a five-year-old script if you're a better writer now. Uh, but as long as it, you still feel like it is your best script. Also, every time you're about to send a script, you here, here's, the, here's the trick. You need your script ready to go, but the day before you send it to someone, read it one more time and see if you want to change anything. <laughs> <laughs> it's too late to write the script. It's not too late to do one last draft. Um, I always do that. Uh, but generally, if you're going to write a script for an existing show, the rule is it should be a show that's on the air right now, and it should be a show, an episode that could be in the current season. I um, see. And the reason to do that basically is to prove you wrote it recently. Um, because oh. people people want to know that you're writing kind of consistently, and they want to know that you can do it fast, relatively fast. Like, if, if you write a show, if you write an episode that takes place during a current season, at least they know you wrote it, you know, within four or five months, six months. <laughs> That makes a lot of sense. Um, so I would say the only, the only exception to that, and I'm I'm hesitant to give this advice because I think most people shouldn't try this, is <laughs> some people have had success basically doing a a gimmick script based on an old show. So like, mm. if you write, for example, like a, a friend of mine did this as a play. They they performed it at it was it was. Uh, 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 they they performed it at UCB, but this could have been a script. Someone did Seinfeld, but during the purge, <laughs> and that kind of thing could work. Like if you're like, oh, it's it's you know whatever, yeah. If if so, because it's almost a spoof at this point. Yeah, so it's all it's almost like it's not an original, but because I'm thinking also about a show like for example, uh, Angie Tribeca, which I think is so funny. Oh, I yeah, love the yeah. show. That's a, yeah, but um. It's kind of like a spoof show, so it's kind of like almost as if they wrote Naked Gun. Yeah, 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 definitely. So I think if you're going to do an old famous show, you need some, you can't just be a normal episode of that old famous show. You would need some kind of like gag, but I don't really, I I think most people aren't going to pull that off. I don't really think that's what, like, if you have an amazing idea like that, great, but like you probably won't. Um so in general, like, well, you know what? I'll just tell you one that I had, which if I had finished it, maybe would have been a good sample script. Uh, I wound up hitting in some story problems uh, and then just decided to not finish it. But I had an idea. Do you and I am positive the answer is no. But do you, <laughs> do you know the very old American sitcom F Troop? F Troop? No, I don't think. Well, let me just look it up if I know it by a different name in French. Oh, maybe. I, I don't think you do. I'd be very surprised if it if it traveled well. Instead <laughs> of, uh, but the idea of F the the premise of F Troop it was a show from it must have been the sixties. Um, and oh yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. So definitely I, not. I I know it because it used to air on Nick at Night when I in the nineties it aired on Nick at Night as an old sitcom. Um, so the premise of F Troop was that it was like uh uh soldiers in the America in America right after the Civil War like. Western, like while uh, they ran a fort uh, in in Native American country uh, right after the Civil War, great comedic stuff. And the idea was that they were just like incompetent. It was like a fort of incompetent soldiers, uh, like <laughs> bungling around and blowing up their own tower. And the main character was basically a criminal. He was like running a black market. Where like uh, and the like incompetent general, like general who could never like catch him doing it. Uh, and I just really like, it's just an old, cheesy, very classic, uh, old American sitcom that I, I, I like, 
And so I had the idea for a parody of it where what if it was exactly F Troop but set in then modern Afghanistan? Oh no. <laughs> and I was like, and the idea was the idea was to show how insensitive and wrong it was to make F Troop <laughs> because of how actually serious that situation was. Yeah, I know. And, I see what you're saying. And so my idea was I'll treat it exactly as goofy, but it's in Afghanistan. And for a lot of reasons, I didn't finish it and never showed it to anyone. But that was that was my attempt to do that. Like, I'm going to do an old show, but like with a gimmick. Right. Uh, and so that's my cautionary tale of probably not worth it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess it's like, yeah, I guess. Yeah. When you're like, yeah, because you're already like starting with this show. That's like, yeah, there's so generally problematic. <laughs> generally, my advice would be. Uh, pick a show that is currently airing that you really like. And it's a little tough now because every show is serialized and every show has a plot. So it makes it a little Mm -hmm. harder to wait. Where do you fit your episode in? But uh, if if you, you should try to write a current show. Um, And also if you're, if you, the biggest reason to write a spec script of an existing show is pretty much to submit it to festivals and fellowships. Um, And like, like you said with Nickelodeon, they're always going to have a list of acceptable shows and it's always, it's mm-hmm. always going to be pretty much current shows. Mm, so true. if you want, if you're a, if you're a writer just starting out, it really does make sense to look at uh, not so much festivals because they can be kind of a ripoff, but any fellowship, anything where if you win, you really get something. Um, mm. That's, those are really are worth it and they're, they're competitive and they're hard to get. But if you can get into one of those writing programs, that's a good leg up. And though they're always going to have a list of acceptable shows and it's always going to be a recent show. This is going to be your only options. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's um, a good muscle to have, but you really do want an original, an original script too. So you pretty much have to write two scripts and then you're ready for luck. Yeah. I was, I was going to say like, I, I took some writing classes um, with the writing pad at the beginning of the year and everybody that was um, a panelist said the same thing. So I do believe that. Yeah. Um, that's kind of how it is right now. Yeah. And, and like, this is all obviously yeah. comedy advice, but it pretty much works the same for drama. Uh, I would say basically the yeah. same thing. You'd want to spec. It would be hour long instead of half hour, but you would want a, an original spec pilot. And then you'd probably want to write like, you know, an episode of, uh, the flash or uh whatever <laughs> whatever uh drama you like which is hard because writing a an original uh you have to do so much you have to like set up the world set up your characters and on top of that be funny i know and, like, I, interesting. I know it, it's so much i mean that's all i've been doing the last year and a half i've been i've got a uh i'm on a under a development deal at warner brothers and mm. all I've been doing is developing and pitching and like writing pilots and stuff. And yeah, it kind of, it kind of stinks because it's like the pilot episode of a comedy, especially is never the best episode of the show ever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's the uh, pilot comedy pilots are like sometimes pilots, drama pilots are sometimes the best episode. Cause sometimes it's just a really cool movie that sets up the characters. Uh, mm-hmm. But the pilot of a comedy is basically, they always do something better later. Once the characters are established, they find their voice. <laughs> I agree. I feel like even though I'm just throwing my webcomic on the side, like I feel like I was just like recently I was at an event where we were reading comics and I was looking through my first chapters of Rodney and I was like, ooh, <laughs> <laughs> not the best writing. Uh, oh, well, but, with, a, with a comic, it's doubly because I bet you draw them a little differently now than you did then, right? I did. I do. But I feel for me to join. I don't know. It's a um, it's a really funny thing because I, I, I hear sometimes people being like, well, the art is so much better now. Like when, for example, even when they're talking about Scott Pilgrim oh, and yeah. I'm like, 
I'm like, I thought the art was fine. I mean, I'm not, I'm not very, but you could, I, I but, feel like but you would say, if you look at Scott Pilgrim, you can tell that the art changed, even if you like it, yeah. even if you like it just as much in the beginning. Yeah, exactly. That's so funny. Um, well, I, I wish we could talk more about pitching and everything, but we're kind of <clears throat> running on an hour and a half and I, I do want to get to some questions. Yeah, sure. So well, probably. Yeah, I would say the the only the only quick thing I I, I want to throw in about pitching is that that's the biggest way that my live my stage experience helped me is I'm I'm very mm-hmm. comfortable performing in front of people, uh, and I don't get stage fright, and I can you know all the improv. I, like I said, I haven't done much improv really per, like performed, but I took four four levels of improv classes at UCB. Um, I've done mm-hmm. a lot of stand up. Like I'm just I can think on my feet, uh, and that even if you even if you're an artist, it was probably a good idea to do some stage performing just to get used to that. Because you, because yeah. as you know, uh, as artists, you're pitching all the time because you also have to pitch your, even if you're not pitching your own show, you're pitching your boards most likely. That's true. Yeah. If you're a board artist. If you're if a board you're, artist. If you're a designer, yeah. you don't have to pitch so much. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Rig- C- CG riggers don't pitch their rigs, I guess. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> What if they well, did? I, what if they were like, and here's the elbow? <laughs> I think in feature, because I've been to a, a couple of um, art, but it's usually, no, I feel like it's usually the lead that will pitch all the like, kind of like, oh, and we did this painting to kind of do this mood and like, oh, yeah, like art, like, to get art this. like art directors are probably sort of pitching the art concepts and stuff, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And sometimes you have like uh, the artists themselves kind of trying to give a little context, but it's not as much as I, I, I could. Anyhow, this was going to be a big tangent. I, I could see how that some in some places that would happen, but definitely it's not as my big other as... my other big my other big pitching advice is see if you can find any video of Jorge Gutierrez pitching anything because he's probably the best at it. He's great. He's, he's amazing. He's so good at pitching. <laughs> yeah, he's like he's a storyteller. It's he's really yeah he and he was on mad he just for a little bit and he he would for him mad was a little fun break his career was well on its way anyway but he was we did we did have him for about a year oh was he a writer or an artist Uh, i mean he was an artist but on on mad there was some opportunity for for artists to sort of pitch ideas and stuff and and me and me and jorge collaborated on some little little sketches and videos uh while we were uh, on Mad, and actually, I have uh, I know uh, one of the questions that got asked on my Twitter. So maybe you don't have it in your list. Is a, qu- a question where the answer involves Jorge. So I'll hold on to it. Oh yeah, well let me ask the question right now. So da 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 da. I'm, I have your tw- Twitter pulled up. Okay, great. So what if any was left on the cutting room floor with the DC Nation? No, is that it? Yep, that's um, it. Yep. Destination shorts you worked on, Superman of Tokyo, Animal Man, Vibe, Farm League, Tales of Metropolis, anything you pitched that wasn't greenlit. And that is a question from DCAU Resource. Uh, funny, you should ask. Yes, me and Jorge Gutierrez came up with a pitch together <laughs> uh, that, that uh, was not greenlit. Uh, it was going to be called Bat Ombre. <laughs> Uh, it was based on a real DC character that already existed named Bat Ombre, who even before Jorge got a hold of him, what Bat Ombre was, was a man in Mexico who takes on the role of Batman and he is Batman with a sombrero and a mustache. <laughs> <laughs> this, 
Davis was already the character. Uh, he's just from one issue and he turns out to actually be like a villain. It's not a good story, but he exists. He's on a cover. Uh, and so Jorge uh, did a, a version of Bat Ombre, which was Batman with a sombrero and a mustache, but in Jorge's style. Uh, and it was going to be... It was during this era when in the comic books they were doing this thing called Batman Incorporated where Bruce Wayne was going around the world and basically using his money to fund Batman in other countries. Uh, and uh, we we sort of took that idea and we were like, oh, so he uh, – it was the idea was that he was like a guy in Mexico City who sees Bruce Wayne getting mugged and, you know, doesn't know he's Batman. So he like rushes over to like save him. Uh, And then uh, Bruce Wayne's like, Hey, you're all right. You want to be Batman? (laughs) Uh, And he's uh, the bat ombre of uh, of Mexico city. And uh, at the time Warner brothers and probably now, honestly, uh, Warner brothers was taking Batman very seriously and they, didn't oh, want yeah. to do a super, even though DC Na- I did I did some really goofy stuff in DC Nation. Uh, they didn't want us to do a really goofy Batman cartoon. And really, then what happened is Jorge left to go make his movies. I think if Jorge had stayed at Warner Brothers, we probably would have done some version of it eventually. Uh, but once he what they they initially were worried about it being uh, not received well, and then Jorge wasn't there anymore. Uh, so that's that's mm-hmm. my big uh, the big one that got away. Uh, the other one uh, is uh, me and Will Patrick, who did the Animal Man shorts together and the Tales of Metropolis shorts together. Uh, when we pitched the Superman Tales of Metropolis ones, we also pitched a series of Etrigan the Demon uh, shorts, uh, because Etrigan the Demon's deal is that he has to rhyme to use his powers. Uh, he's a he's a human man who turns into a demon by saying, I think it's, I think the rhyme is like gone now form of man and rise the demon etrigan uh and so we had the idea that like he couldn't cast any spells or do any powers unless he could make it rhyme and the whole the whole joke was him like having trouble coming up with poems (laughs) he goes to acting school yeah it'd be like etrigan losing the fight because he can't figure out what to rhyme with fireball (laughs) so they they didn't go with that we did the superman ones instead so funny i love it <laughs> yeah, but if you start, if you if you look up jorge he jorge's definitely posted images of bad ombre you can find it that's so funny oh my gosh that would have been funny though i know but, it would have been yeah uh, it, it would have been so but cool. it's true it's true i feel like batman is like that one franchise that is like no it's serious forever yeah pretty much i'm glad they did batman brave and the bold at least they were that's what they were working on when i first got to warner brothers which is sort of the i guess more light, lego batman yeah lego batman that one's goofy and that's the, yeah know, people like batman look i love the great thing about batman is he can be serious or goofy yeah <laughs> Yeah. But yeah, even my like when I did Batman Ninja Turtles, I played, you know, that's definitely a there are definitely jokes in that movie. It sort of has that Marvel movie tone of like a serious action movie but with a lot of jokes. But Batman mm-hmm. is is if Batman's funny, it's like in a straight man way. He's like it's funny because he's being serious in a funny situation. Well, since we're talking about Batman versus TMNT, uh from at Cashed Art, um we have a question. What was the most enjoyable part about writing Batman versus TMNT? And did you end up taking inspiration from previous incarnations from both properties, or did you do it all with your own vision? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, the most re- like rewarding thing was just getting to do it. I mean, it's still one of my best like credits. It's one of the things I'm most most proud of. It was received really well. I mean, ba- it was based on 
it was kind of a, a one-two thing because first of all, it's it's Batman who I'd never really gotten the opportunity to really write, even though I had been at Warner Brothers for a long time at that point. Um, and then you know the Ninja Turtles who you know are Nickelodeon, and I don't even work there, so like those are two sets of characters that I really love and really grew up with. I really, really liked Ninja Turtles when I was a kid. I was I was very into the 80s, 90s Ninja Turtles show. I had a ton of Ninja Turtles toys. I read a lot of the comics. Um, so I was really into the live action movies. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, the rewarding thing really was just getting to do this just very cool, like, it sounds made up. It's such a cool project, sort of project. And it was based on a, a comic that DC uh, had done... Uh, that's good. It's a, it's a good comic. We did. I tried to keep, I tried to adapt as much of the comic into our movie as I possibly could, uh, because I wanted fans of the comic to feel like it was a in good faith adaptation of that comic, not just the concept of Batman and Ninja Turtles. Uh, so that was really fun. And I know the, the writer of the comic, uh, James Tynan, uh, was like a, a, a friend of a friend, like casual acquaintance. And it was, it was cool to be able to like, I like while I was working on the movie, I would like see him at parties and be like, I'm right. I'm adapting your comic. I'm doing this. And he's like, Oh, that's so cool. What about this? I'm like, Oh, cool. Like it was cool to be able to do that. Um, oh, that's really cool. That must be really fun. And he's like, yeah. he's like a superstar comic writer now, but that was one of his first comics. So he was very excited back then. He was like, I can't believe you're adapting one of my things. Uh, yeah. And there's probably gonna be like five TV shows based on his creator own stuff in the next couple of years. So keep an eye out for that stuff. Um, he's great. Uh, so that was the most rewarding thing. As far as inspiration, uh, I feel like, I mean, the, the biggest inspiration was the comic. Uh, a lot of the, the jokes and the lines and characterization, uh, comes directly from the comic. Um, so I, I can't speak to what James's inspiration was for how he wrote them, but I feel like for the most part, I was trying to do kind of my i figured there was a good chance this was my only this might be the only time i get to write the ninja turtles maybe the only time i get to really write a serious batman definitely the only time i'm gonna write them together so i gotta really do this right and i just tried to write everybody the way yeah the way i would do it like my idealized if i was writing a ninja turtle comic if i was writing a ninja turtle show this is how i would write the characters but i think that what that meant was I was writing the characters the way I remembered them from the live action movie. And mm. I don't think I wrote them exactly like the live action movie because I think it went through the lens of my sensibility. But I think the live action, the first live action movie is probably my baseline for the Ninja Turtles. Um, and then for Batman, I was trying to write him like Batman, the animated series, Batman, because that's what everybody's going to do for the rest of time, because it's the best version of Batman. Uh, mm. and, uh, for Batgirl, there was a, a current Batgirl comic happening at the time, which people usually call Batgirl of Burnside, uh, where she had that purple costume and she was like a college student. Uh, and I was kind of trying to write her like that. I really liked that comic. That's what she looked like in our movie. Um, and then, uh, for, I think for the only character I would say I didn't really do my like perfect version of is, uh, Damian Wayne, Robin. The, the 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 story needed him to be kind of a stick in the mud and a little bit of like a mini Batman um, because Batman was not going to soften that much. And so I needed someone who could start with that super serious, these turtles are buffoons attitude, but then warm up to them by the end more than Batman mm -hmm. ever would. Uh, and so that's how I, I, Damian wound up filling that role because I needed him to. That's not really my perfect ideal version of Damian Wayne. My perfect Damian Wayne is like a little psycho murderer 
Uh, I think I think in a, in a perfect world, I think Damien should be kind of funny because he's such a little maniac. <laughs> um that's what i think is funny is that he's a little ninja assassin who thinks he should be batman right now (laughs) uh it would be my perfect damien so i i would say for every character i just wrote them in the way i would in a perfect world except damien because i needed him to be a little more serious for this story (laughs) Mm, that's really cute um that was a question that actually answered a question that was very similar with uh which was from at gr repairs um which was also about the characterization mm. of the turtles um they really loved um how the turtles were characterized in the in the in that batman versus tmnp yeah it was really fun and 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 you know like i said also a lot of it really did just come directly from the comic because i i used a lot of uh a lot of lines and stuff uh from from the comic i would say probably like and then like yeah, it's just a weird mix. It's like Raphael and Leonardo, I was trying to do live action, first live action movie, Raphael and Leonardo. Michelangelo, I was basically doing 80s cartoon Michelangelo because that's the most fun. Uh, and then Donatello, I just wrote like me. <laughs> we had um, questions from a couple other people. We might not have the time to get through all of them. I'll just chat out their names just because it's really great that they um, asked for prompts and questions. So one was from CSM Valentin and one was from at Chevistian one who said right now Kapow was the jam. Uh, the last question that I think would be kind of fun to go over is from at Dimps Doodles who asked any tips on avoiding cliche comedy beats or phrases in your scripts? Uh, yeah, so I mean, comedy, I'll do, uh, it's like, it's different things. So comedy phrases, it's tough because there's this thing that happens in comedy writing where essentially certain combinations of words sound funny to everybody writing comedy all at the same time. And so we all start using them. And usually someone used it first and you, technically everyone else is copying that person. But so quickly everybody does it that you forget that someone had to do it first. That's how you get line. That's how you get stuff like every every movie for five years straight having the line i think i threw up in my mouth a little Ah. someone did it first but then people were just like that's just a funny thing to say and then it became a cliched thing to say um and so honestly like i think it was the workaholics writers that did this and then like posted a picture of it honestly the way to avoid comedy phrases and cliches is to notice them like keep a Mm -hmm. basically keep a list of like phrases that you feel like you've seen too much of and just make sure you don't use them (laughs) (laughs) um because they're gonna sneak in you're gonna do it you're gonna you're suddenly you're gonna be writing your script and all of a sudden you're gonna realize you just wrote someone saying oh he's standing right behind me isn't he (laughs) Uh, and you just gotta notice it and change it because you're sick of it um i think a big a big one for me is in my stand-up i used to say that's i used to say that's not a thing a lot um and then i slowly realized everyone was saying that and i needed to stop (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh so it's it's really just observe the the cliches and the phrases so you can catch it catch yourself when you do it um and that is also why you know there's a, a comedy thing called uh, uh it comes up in improv the most but it's because an improv you have to come up with jokes on the spot so you have to try to avoid those cliches in real time which is much harder uh but it, it applies to writing also which is we say like don't go from a to b try to go to from a to c mm. so it's like if if you're if you if one idea makes you think of a second idea, probably everyone will think of that second idea. So try to think of yeah. a third idea because maybe you're the only one that thought of that third idea. 
Um, so that's, that's, that's the simple version of, of that. Um, just make sure you don't like do it too many steps. You don't want to go from A to E because then no one can tell how you got there. And it's just weird. I, ah, this is too relatable. <laughs> uh. one, 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 one thing uh, me and my, my friend Justin used to say is if you're going to go off the rails, the train needs to still be like within eyesight of the train track. You need to know where the rails were because if you can't even <laughs> see the rails anymore, now it's just a train in a field. That's a different thing. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> now it's dangerous. Um, that was great. I, I wanted to, okay, since we're kind of like running uh, long on time, what's your best advice on creative block in less than 30 seconds? Uh, all right. Uh, okay. Here's, here's, uh, here's an old, uh, old comedy <laughs> writing trick. This is, this is best for coming up with sketches or stand-up ideas, but you can do this for anything. Uh, all right. So if you think that two different ideas are sort of funny and interesting to you, right. And you think maybe there's some way they're related. Like you're like, okay, uh, I like, uh, sports. I like sports anime. I like baseball, but I also like sci-fi. So what if there was like a show that was like a sci-fi baseball team going through space playing games in a galactic league a way you could come up with ideas for that is you make a list of ideas and words and concepts related to baseball and then you make a list of ideas and concepts and words related to outer space and then you start comparing those lists and you go okay uh a free agent but also uh interstellar travel and you're like okay uh they get a new player from another solar system and you just go down the list and you come up with a hundred bad ideas and hopefully one good one <laughs> that was great that's amazing great tip in less than 30 seconds <laughs> sorry for rushing you. no that was probably that 30 second version was the best way to give that advice the lo- lo- more time would not have made it any better <laughs> is there anything you want to plug before we go uh yeah i do i mean uh, mostly i'm on twitter so you can follow me at marley hg uh which is m-a-r-l-y-h-g uh and i also have my own podcast called hero rewatch uh that i do with my brother austin uh and the premise of our podcast is we're rewatching at first well our first project is we're rewatching the marvel studios movies because me and austin uh are really big fans of them uh but uh, i'm 12 years older than him so for uh a bit most of his life I've been on an opposite coast from him and we've just been talking about Marvel comics and Marvel movies on the phone. Uh, and, uh, that age difference means he's basically the age now that I was when the first Iron Man movie came out. So we've been revisiting the movies, seeing how they seem different to us now that there's 27 of them. Uh, now that we're older, now that the world has changed, what fandom means to us has changed, uh, and comparing our experiences as very different aged people. He's at the very beginning of his, uh, career. Uh, in entertainment Uh, he's also a film major like me uh, and I've you know been doing this uh, for a while and it's a great time to jump on because uh, we just did Infinity War uh, part one we're going to probably be at Infinity we're probably going to be at uh, uh, Avengers Endgame uh, around the time this episode comes out Uh, so if you want to hear us go through the Marvel Studios movies and revisit them with a uh, slightly critical and slightly film majory eye but also as uh, big fans of the characters and the source material uh that's what we've been doing and then we're gonna uh move on to other movies and other fun stuff anything we want to go back and rewatch and revisit so that's hero rewatch uh on all the big podcast apps uh you know spotify anchor apple uh and we're on twitter uh at hero rewatch so if you want to check that out and hear me talk about stuff uh you can there's a lot of it well 
thank you so much for coming on the show. And I guess that's the end of this creative block. Uh, Marley, thanks for being our guest and sharing your story. And thanks to your listeners. Follow us on Twitter. It's at Creative Block, Creative Without the Vowels, where we ask for drawing prompts and questions to ask our guests. Huge thanks to our editor, Clemens, for editing the podcast and Malik for helping us produce the show. If you love our show, then support us on Patreon. Becoming a patron gets you early access to interviews as well as bonus episodes. Click the link in the description of this episode. I've been your host, V. Keep being creative and we'll see you next week. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Thanks for having me.